Uh, John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 11 again. Uh, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and, and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his wondrous word. Father, you're so merciful to us in giving us this, your word. And Lord, there are so many things we can glean here from the arrest of our Savior. Lord, we know that this was your predetermined plan that you had sought even from the beginning of all eternity to carry out, uh, to save your people from their sins. And yet, Lord, let us not miss the suffering our Savior endured at the hands of sinful men uh, together today through your word. Lord, enlighten our eyes to your truth. Help us to see that which will grow us more into the image of Christ. We're trusting you because of your character to work this, your preached word, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we approach our text this morning, we need to understand that John doesn't provide us really with a full description of all that happened on this particular occasion. Uh, for instance, he doesn't include the, the agonizing pain that Jesus went through where he prayed the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, nor does he mention the kiss of Judas or certain other things that happened on this dreadful night. John actually assumes that his readers can get those different details from uh, other accounts that are presented in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember why John wrote this. John wrote this gospel to offer an account of the life and ministry of Jesus from a slightly different perspective than the Synoptics. We saw this from the very outset of this series. Remember, we looked at the difference between John's gospel and the Synoptics. They're quite different in many ways. But one particular thing that that makes John's account distinct is the emphasis upon the deity of Jesus. It's not that the synoptics fail to mention Jesus being God, but John seems to place a greater amount of emphasis on it than the others. And that comes through clearly in the way he conveys the arrest of Jesus here in John 18. We will see some wonderful and marvelous ways that the deity of Jesus comes shining through very brightly in this particular account. I want you to remember something with me. If you were a child of the 90s like I am, maybe you're not. Uh, but if you were lived through the 90s, I remember one particular thing about going to my grandfather's house, my dad's dad, the infamous Poppy as he's known. I remember one thing about being a child 
uh, his grandchild in northern Florida in the 1990s. And that is every time that I went into his house, there was one show and one show only that would be playing as loud as it possibly could be playing. And that is the uh, record-breaking, award-winning, very upstanding, wonderful show, Cops. Right? Uh, if you had a grandfather in the 1990s, or you were a grandfather in the 1990s uh, in northern Florida, he was probably, or you were probably watching this show, Cops. You remember, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? I remember watching that as a kid and knowing that there should be some sort of instilled fear uh, that I had against the police force and respect and reverence for them, because if you break the law, you'll get arrested. I remember just watching that show and thinking everyone who breaks the law on this show ends up getting arrested. Well, uh, thankfully, prayerfully, I'm sure, with many occasions, I had really no run-ins in the law to cause me to have such fear until the year of 2012 when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was driving home one evening after working uh, at Target. I was going to seminary. I had not met my beautiful wife Amy yet, uh, and I was driving home from Target, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a little bit of issue with obeying uh, particular traffic laws, uh, particularly the speed limit. Now, I know being such pious and righteous people, none of you have ever probably struggled with such uh, heresy and difficulty and sinfulness, but I had an issue in that particular night, and so it wasn't my first time being pulled over, but it happened that night that I had gotten pulled over. And I remember, I've been through this before, so I started going uh, into my glove compartment and reaching for my registration. Well, I guess uh, the cops in Callahan are probably a little bit different than the cops in Memphis, which the city of Memphis has one of the highest murder rates uh, known to man in the USA. Uh, And so I remember that night something happened. As I was reaching uh, in this foggy, dark, wet night in for my registration in my glove compartment, I hear something in the midst of this that really caught my ears. and those words were, let me see your hands. Uh, and in that moment, I know that I, um, I come across like a tough guy. Uh, don't laugh at that. That's not a joke. Uh, I, I know that I may come across this way, but in that moment, I had the fear of God put into me, right? And, I, and my life flashed before my eyes. I was like, no, I'm never going to finish my degree or get married or have kids or see the Jags win a Super Bowl, which still probably won't happen. But uh, regardless, I just remember having this sort of absolute panic and fear and remembering I wanted to go as slow as possible to show my hands to this officer so that I would not die. Uh, I remember having that fear and panic when it came to the thought of being arrested or even worse. What we see in this account is tremendous for many ways. But I think one of the main things I see in this account that shocks me is how Jesus, in the midst of his arrest, is in absolute control. He is calm. He is not shaken in any way. He is in absolute, complete control. Control And John wants his readers to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that all that happened to Jesus, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, was not done to him as some helpless victim who simply got dealt a bad hand in life. John sets out to show that the things that Jesus endured, he endured as a voluntary sacrifice. The Lord wants us to know that none of these things happened to him, though he were some passive creature with no control over these circumstances. No, these things came to pass by his will, and he endured them voluntarily. And so I want to break this passage down into five separate sections, and I want to begin with the scene of his arrest. We see this in verses 1 through 3. We're going to start with the scene of his arrest. 
John sets the scene perfectly here. In verses 1 through 3, this is what John says. He says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So at some point after John 17, after the high priestly prayer, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place which John tells us that Jesus actually went to quite often with his disciples. Uh, From where they were on that particular night, in order for them to get to the garden, they had to cross this ravine named Kidron. Now, in my study, there's an interesting bit of symbolism that we might pick up here. In that day, uh, there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to the Kidron ravine to drain away the blood sacrifices. And you remember what time of year this was? This was the Passover. So, so really more than 200,000 lambs probably slain. So when Jesus and his men crossed the Kidron, it was red with the blood of sacrifice. That blood, by the way, which pointed to the blood of the Lamb of God that he would shed for his people to wash away their sins. The blood mixed with water in the brook, it it pointed to the blood and water that would be shed from the body of our Savior to wash us as his people for our sin. What amazing bit of symbolism we have here. Well, later on in the scene setting, we're told that a detachment of troops came together to go look for Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but a full cohort was known to have consisted of about 600 to 1,000 men. In addition to this, there were also a number of priests and temple guards and members of the Sanhedrin that were present. We don't know exactly how many, but regardless, we do know that the number was, was great. Matthew 26, he refers to this group as a great multitude. And I want you also, in the scene of this arrest, note the timing of the arrest. When did they come? They came by night. The forces of darkness came under the cover of darkness to snuff out the light of the world. That's remarkable. Uh, One commentator, William Hendrickson, notes the sad irony of it all when he said this. He said, this group uses torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. It was full moon. They came with swords and cudgels to subdue the prince of peace. How ironic is this? You know, I think sometimes when we read these accounts, we miss uh, the, re- the reality of how some of these things added to the suffering of our Savior. Uh, Mr. Hendrickson also picks up on this when he notes this. For, for the man of sorrows, the very sight of this band of ruffians, which considered him their quarry, meant indescribable suffering. Uh, they had come out against him as if he were a criminal, a robber, for instance. This was agony. He felt the bitter insult, as is clear from the word he spoke in Matthew 26, 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. In describing what the soldiers did, how the guards treated them, in speaking about Judas, Peter, Caiaphas, Annas, and Pilate, and others, the main purpose must ever be to show what each contributed to his suffering. We need to understand how hurtful these things were that our Savior endured. It was all part of him coming into the world as the man of sorrows. Now you can see by the scene of this arrest, this plot was very carefully planned. 
We need to remember that in times past, they, they tried to get Jesus, but were unable to time and time again. He always got away. But this time, they had the help of one particular man from among Jesus's inner circle. And if anybody knew where to find Jesus, we know Judas did. For that reason, we reread in verses 3 through 6 of Luke chapter 22. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Did you catch that last part, by the way? Apart from the crowd? See, they knew if they were going to get Jesus, they had to do it apart from the crowd where people weren't around. It's another reason why they went at night. You can imagine what the uproar would have been if they went after him during the day when he was surrounded by followers or listeners. So here we have this scene that sets the stage for his arrest. That's our first section we want to cover. I want us to move on to the next section. I want us to see how the great I am shows his complete control over this situation. The I am shows his complete control over the situation. This is what we see happening in verses 4 through 6 of our text. The I am shows his complete control over the situation. Let's uh, read this together in verses 4 through 6. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, not knowing any better, people who don't know the full account of all that happened this night might not really appreciate what's going on here. Well, when they look at this account, they might be led to think that Jesus was caught in some trap, that his enemies had him cornered and they were going to get him that night. But John tells us this wasn't the case at all. As we said, Jesus knew all that was about to come upon him. And this was John's way of telling us none of this was a surprise to Jesus. The interesting thing about Judas finding Jesus, by the way, is not so much that he knew where to find Jesus, but that Jesus knew that Judas knew where to find him, and he did not a thing to prevent it. Again, Jesus is the one in control. He's not surprised here. Nothing's come upon him by happenstance. Jesus is the one who stepped forward from his own accord. In this account, we see he initiated the conversation. Even knowing all these things that would happen and come upon him, he doesn't look for a way of escape. Instead, he steps forward and he initiates interaction with those who would come to take him away. He asked them, whom do you seek? And the Greek indicates that the answer was given by more than one person because the verb is in the plural. It says, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered back and said, I am he. But we know, just as in other places where Jesus refers to himself in this manner, the pronoun he is not in the original. That's why, by the way, it's in italics in your copy of God's word. Jesus intended to say here, I am. He wasn't merely saying, I am he who you are looking for. He is saying, I am. You see, Jesus is unhesitatingly affirming he is the one whom they're seeking. There's no need for Judas to lavish upon him any sort of kiss in order to point him out to the others. Jesus was going to step forward voluntarily. Jesus isn't hiding. 
If anything, Jesus is purposely placing himself front and center, and he is doing it to show everybody who is really control of this situation. When Jesus answered by saying, I am, we know he's asserting his deity. That's the name of God. It's the name that God gives to Moses when he asks for his name in Exodus 3. It's the name Jesus affirms at the end of John 8. It's why they wanted to kill him. This time, when he does this, a sign is attached to that statement. When the men fall to the ground, it's a sign of the validity of Jesus being God. He is the I am of old. He is God. Gordon Ketty notes this in his commentary. He says, given the fact that one of the charges leveled against Jesus in addition to sedition was blasphemy, based on that alone, it's quite reasonable to suppose that Jesus meant to claim that he is God and that his father meant to seal this reality with a miraculous sign in which the men drew back and fell to the ground. Now, Given that these men drew back and fell to the ground simply at the words of Jesus, we're provided with something that's a bit of a foreshadow on what will come to pass on the day of judgment. When when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Uh, These men, they didn't fall to the ground, by the way, voluntarily, and neither will unbelievers in the day of judgment. Whether they want to or not, God will cause them to bow a knee and recognize that he is king. Uh, John wants you to realize this is no accident here. Think about this. Jesus speaks and the deaf hear. Jesus speaks and the storm stop. Jesus speaks and the death come forth. Jesus speaks and armies fall to the ground. With one word, Jesus could have stopped everything that was happening that night. No man could have taken him if he had not willed it. This was Jesus, the Son of God, doing what he had been sent from heaven to earth to do. Uh, You see, he had a purpose to serve. And once again, we see him calm, cool, and collected throughout this entire exchange with these people. It was nothing for him to say these words, I am. He wasn't exhausted. You know, sometimes we've been watching this Star Wars show, uh, The Mandalorian. Yes, I know. Um, We're Star Wars nerds in our family. And and one of the cutest things about Mandalorian, these cutest things, is is Baby Yoda. I don't know if you've heard this phenomenon, but it's it's cute. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a Yoda who's a baby, right? Uh, And every time Yoda uses the force, something happens. He gets drained, exhausted. He gets tired. And, and don't you see that? And anytime there's some, we live in a, a, an age of superhero movies and supernatural forces thing. And every time it seems somebody uses some sort of supernatural force, they've got to go rest because they're tired. They're exhausted. That supernatural force has, has drained all of their energy. Listen, Jesus being the creator of everything, he didn't need to rest after this. He simply said two words, one word in the Greek, I am. And then powerfully, when he spoke those words, all of these men drew back and fell down. And Jesus wasn't exhausted by that. He probably could have done this all day long. If he wanted to, if he wanted to have fun, they could have got right back up and he could have said, I am. And they would have done it again. It showed like an accordion just falling back and up down. He could have done it easily. He's that powerful. It didn't exhaust him in any way, shape, or form. He's God. And I want you to see something here. From Jesus' word, these men fall to the ground. I just want you to be reminded of something today. Whatever trial you might be facing in this particular moment, Jesus has the power to erase it from existence with just a word. Yet, think about this. Just like we see here in our text, if he does not, 
I think we can all safely assume that there is a glorious purpose attached to why we are walking through what we are walking through. Uh, The mere fact that he was able to exert that power by speaking a couple of words while remaining so calm, man, it really should have caused all of these men to be filled with dread. It should have frightened these guys to no end. But it didn't. And that leads into our third section here. The great shepherd provides a way of escape for his disciples. The great shepherd provides a way of escape for his disciples. That's in verses 7 through 9. Look at that with me now. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Jesus, once again, continuing to show that he's in control of the situation, he asked them again. It's it's his way of making them see, listen, I'm I'm the one here, guys, who's going to guard this this conversation. He's the one who is, is going to be asking the questions. And they think that night they've come in their great number, remember, 600 men to show their power to this particular man, Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the one who shows he's wielding all the power. Well, Jesus asked them whom they're seeking a second time. And he did this for a couple of reasons, but I think one of which is that he desired to provide a way for his disciples, provide a way of escape. When they said they sought Jesus, by their own words, they acknowledged that they had no business with his disciples. Because if they were truly looking for Jesus, then Jesus was the only one they should take. Jesus gets them to admit this ultimately. By this, Jesus is looking out for his own. Jesus is drawing the persecution to himself so that his disciples could go free. Church, isn't this just a wonderful picture of the mercy of God that's shown to us in the work of the atonement? In the atonement, Jesus takes the wrath of God upon himself so that he might free us, his children, to go and serve him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? We know this. Jesus is always carefully preserving his people. He he doesn't allow for us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, but as we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he always provides a way of escape. It is for our ultimate redemption that he provides these things for his people. Not only that, but remember, Jesus had work for these men to accomplish. Work that would have a great effect on the redemption of others throughout many generations to come. According to God's plan, these men would be tasked with passing on the message of the gospel to future generations. And to do so by committing these gospel accounts to the writings of Holy Scripture. God was faithful to preserve his disciples back then so we might have these words today. So that through the reading, the preaching, and the teaching, others will come to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now that we looked at Jesus, the great shepherd, providing a way of escape for his disciples, let's look now at the reaction of the disciples in our fourth section. What we see here is the rash response of a follower creates damage Jesus must fix. The rash response of a follower creates damage Jesus must fix. Now, when we think of rash responses in the scripture, obviously Peter comes to mind, right? We should not be surprised at this point that this is Peter, but bear with me here. Let's not be so hard on him. Look at verse 10 at what it says here. Simon Peter, then having a sword, 
drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. I'd also like to pick up on the parallel account in, in Luke 22 that Brock read in verses 49 through 51. Uh, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Church family, can I say something? I, I wish that that was the only time that Christ had to heal those who had been wounded by overzealous and misguided followers. But sadly, it isn't. I think there's something we can learn here. So many people who take up the name of Christ, even faithful followers like us, sometimes do really silly things in the name of Christ. In being overzealous for the gospel, for the Lord's kingdom, we sometimes do things in such a way that we actually, we actually cause trouble. And the Lord has to come along and fix our mess. Well, this is what he does with Peter. This is a mess that Peter has made. Peter was pretty quick to defend his Lord, isn't he? Listen, Peter's a maniac. <laughs> there are 600 Roman uh, guards here. The cohort is here. And Peter thinks that he is going to like Ip Man or something, take them all out by himself. And he draws his sword and he cuts an ear off. He's, he's crazy. We can't, we can't help to see that what he did here is something of him really trying to make good on his promise he made earlier to Jesus in John 13, 37. Remember, he's speaking to Jesus. He told Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. In his rash response, he really was ready to die for his Lord. In fact, had not Jesus intervened, Peter would, would have likely been killed that night. And think about this. Remember what Jesus just tried to do? He's making a way of escape for his disciples, but an overzealous disciple, instead of trusting and discerning and seeing what God would have for him, instead drew up his sword and said, I'm going to do this my way. Continues to happen today. Interestingly, in just a very short while, his allegiance to Jesus would be reduced to a cowardly denial of having, having any association with him. He's strong at some points and very weak at other points. Very much like us. <laughs> so we ought to be careful not to be too critical of the Apostle Peter. He's very much a picture of you and I in our weakness and hopefully in our strength as well. But Jesus rebukes Peter. Because his, his reaction shows yet again Peter's unwillingness to believe and accept that Jesus had to die. Peter had still not understood that Jesus must go to the cross. He would not accept this and, and would do whatever he could to prevent Jesus from doing the very thing he came into the world to do. And so verse 11, Jesus says to Peter uh, these particular words. He says, uh, so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In Matthew 26, 52 through 54, Jesus said to him, uh, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus is concerned here. Things must be done according to plan. Peter just can't go off doing his own thing. He needs to follow Jesus. He, he knows what's going to happen. Jesus tells him, listen, I must go to the cross, Peter. Settle down. 
Again, Peter, Peter's not unlike many of us in the way we approach various matters in our lives. Think about this. How many of us know what the Lord's will is in a certain matter, but we refuse to believe it or align ourselves with it? How often do we think we know what is best in spite of the fact that what we think contradicts God's word? In those instances, the Lord would rebuke you and I too. He would tell us to put down our dangerous swords because we either might get hurt or hurt somebody else in the process of following those ways that are contrary to the way he would have us to go. Peter didn't understand back then, but Peter did come to understand at the day of Pentecost. In his sermon in Acts 2, Peter acknowledges this when he referred to all of the events that surrounded the Savior's death with these words in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, Peter at this point recognizes all that happened on that night happened by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was no accident. Nothing slips through the hands of God. It was his purpose that Jesus should be given up on that night, that he might go to the cross to die for our sins and be raised again. This was all according to plan, which leads us to point number five. Jesus reasserts the purpose of God's plan. Jesus reasserts the purpose of of God's plan. He reminds them of this over and over again, but now he's doing it at the day of his arrest. You can read verse 11 with me one more time. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup with the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? There's purpose Jesus has in all of this. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that all of this was being done according to the purpose of God. And remember, what's taking place here is after what Brother Brock read earlier in the service, the prayer. He has already offered up that prayer in the garden and accepted the will of the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. He is resolved to carry out what God had placed before him. He has been resolved all the way up until this point. But he struggled with that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Such that, remember, he sweat even great drops of blood. He was in terror over what he faced. And it wasn't just the hurt and pain that caused him such anguish. It was the fact that he'd be dealing with sin. He, the perfect one, the holy one, was going to become the sin bearer of God's children. He knew that he was going to be the wrath bearer of an eternal God. And at this time, he's agonizing. He's opening himself up before the Father, praying that the cup might pass him by. But he realizes it is not going to. He has to drink the cup. So he gets up from that prayer, resolved to do the very thing he set out to do. But he's going to do it in such a way that shows everybody that he is in control. He will not be taken by the hands of men. He'll go voluntarily because it's according to the will of the Father. Church family, remember, he came into the world for this very purpose. To drink the cup of wrath for his people. To drink it down to its dregs, the scriptures tell us. See, friends, listen, if you're in Christ this morning, then the cup of God's wrath has become for you a cup of blessing. Salvation's cup that we lift up in honor of our Savior and we drink from with our Savior. 
Jesus drank all the bitter judgment from that cup so that you might drink from the kind of wine that makes the heart glad, given to us in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Now, those who remain outside of Christ will have to drink from that cup of wrath. They themselves will have to drink it down to its dregs. And friends, the sad reality is that cup of wrath, it's a bottomless cup. It's endless. God's wrath against sin is eternal. It can only be paid for by an eternal God. There is no end or bottom to this cup of wrath if mere mortal men have to drink from it. So let me plead with all of you this morning. The only way you will not have to drink of this ugly, terrible cup is if you would place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd call out to him by faith this morning, he will save you from your sins. He will have taken that cup that you so richly deserve in your sin, and he will drink it down to its dregs for you on your behalf so that you might be able together with God's people to lift up the cup of salvation, the cup of joy, the cup of blessing, the cup that we partake of when we come to the Lord's Supper. What a merciful gift from our salvation he has given in drinking our cup. You understand this, friends. You, you deserve this. This is what you've earned in your sin. And yet the free gift of God's salvation is, is payment for that sin in Christ Jesus, the very thing that Peter himself is trying to prevent him to do. He has given that as a gift to you. Christ, the pure one, the sinless one, has drank God's wrath on your behalf. He's taken it all if you're in him. We ought to celebrate that. Mercy is there in the gift of Christ. And friends, knowing that Jesus is in full control of all things, we ought to be greatly comforted. Jesus reigns over all things and he can do all things. So, so if we belong to him, there's nothing for us to fear. If we belong to him, he will care for us and protect us. And knowing this, we need to understand that it doesn't mean that everything will go well with us. I need you to know that. As we conclude, I want to consider just a couple points of application as we end. In light of what our Savior went through, we should take note that life in Christ isn't always easy. I need you to know that because there's a, there's a vain, empty, quote-unquote salvation that's not real salvation that teaches that once you come to Christ, your life, man, is just peachy keen. You should never have any problems, and if you do have problems, you must be doing something wrong. That's not the case, friends. It wasn't the case with Jesus. It wasn't the case with the disciples. It wasn't the case with every true follower that's ever been a follower of Christ ever since. Your Christian life will not always be easy. For some, it's never easy. Our Savior suffered much in his life and death. And just because he's done all of that in order to save us completely from our sin, it doesn't mean we'll be free from trials and storms in this life. George Hutchison said this, it's the duty of Christ followers not to expect always so sweet a life as preaching, hearing, communicating, and prayer, but to lay their account that after such exercises, they may be called to suffer, and after fair sunshine, may meet with black storms. And how many saints in Christ and the Lord have experienced this sort of thing firsthand? Consider how many in places where our faith is not tolerated and people have been killed while worshiping in, in places of worship. Indeed, it's a great delight for us as the people of God to come and worship the Lord for week to week, to dwell together here in the Lord's house in unity. But let us never forget that we are involved in a constant war. 
In but a moment, we could be faced with great danger where our very lives may be at risk for believing what we believe, where we might have to decide, are we going to stand up for Jesus and proclaim him boldly in front of persecutors? Or are we going to turn away and deny him? Friends, you and I need to redeem our time living for the glory of God at all times, recognizing that things might not always be as nice as they are for us at this moment. But also recognizing that even those things are not outside the almighty control of our Lord. That he has a good purpose behind all these things. We need to finally learn this lesson from the account, and that is this. The advancement of Christ's kingdom does not and will not come to pass by the power of the sword. The advancement of Christ's kingdom will not and does not come to pass by the power of sword. Those involved in the Crusades in our history, unfortunately, fail to understand the simple fact. Jesus will advance his kingdom, but he will not do it through the swords of men, but by the sword of his spirit. Not by political powers or affiliations with political parties, but by allegiance to our king and his gospel. He's going to do this through conquering the hearts of men, women, and children as his gospel goes forward throughout the world. That is the means God has used for us to engage in this warfare to advance his kingdom. It's the gospel. It is the word of God that will prove effective in changing men's hearts and in changing the cultures in which we live. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, For our weapons are of our warfare, they're not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The way to fight is with the word of God. The way of Christ and the way of the advancement of his kingdom, it's not the way of exerting the power of men. Rather, the way of Christ is the way of death. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of dying to self, dying to sin, dying to our pleasures and temptations of this world and living unto his righteousness. The, the weapons the Lord has given us to engage the enemy and, and to find strength to wage war are the means of his grace, the things we talk about, the word of God, the sacraments and prayer. Church family, the more we make use of these means, the stronger we will be to fight the good fight in his grace. So I want one final question. Just asking all of this, this, this text and these things we thought about this morning, I want you to consider the things you are going through right now in your life, the trials I know many of you are facing. I just know in, in my life, I tend to, to go back when I'm faced with a trial, that same sort of fear that was brought to me that night in Memphis in my car. Everything I didn't get to do, everything I, I thought, everything is up in the balance and it's out of control and it's spiraling out of control and fear and panic set in. Friends, let me remind you. Just like our story in the arrest of Jesus, there was not one moment where any of this was outside of his control. And just like the storm you're facing, the trial you're walking through in your life, not one bit of it is outside of his control. And he is faithful to use even things like suffering and trials and tribulation and storms to bring about good in his glory. And friends, that's why we live. It's why we exist to bring him glory in such things. So my prayer for you is if you're walking through something right now, if you're walking through a difficulty, we're praying together that God would remove that. Sure, but let's see how he's working it. Because he's faithful. He's not outside of control. 
He's not out of the control. He's never been out of control. He'll always be in control in every circumstance in your life. And he's trustworthy with it. Let's trust him together. Let's lean into God's family, his church, and we trust him in his promises at his word together that he will be faithful to use it all for his glory and our good. And not only that, but these light, momentary afflictions are not even worth the eternal glory that's waiting for us if we're in Christ Jesus. Because he, friends, he's taken our cup and he drank it all. If you're in Christ, not a drop of God's wrath will touch you because of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and join our hearts together in prayer.